Hey there, good to see you this weekend. Glad you're joining us. Uh, it's uh, Thanksgiving week, and so I hope you have a great Thanksgiving on Thursday. It'll be a little different this year. I realize that, right? Uh, but we kind of have a different kind of week planned as well. Uh, we have FX on Monday night. That's our family worship experience. So those of you who are interested in that, come out and join us for that. Tuesday, though, is a very, very cool opportunity we're having. 7 o'clock Tuesday night, virtual communion. Love for you to join us. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website. Click on a link there. But uh, it's going to be live, right? And so Pastor Aiden and I are going to lead you through that. Uh, just kind of a casual time to remember Jesus together. Uh, this is our last Sunday in Daniel, right? So I'm kind of sad about that. But uh, we're going to begin our Christmas series next week. And so our Christmas series uh, this year is simply entitled, So This Is Christmas, right? Because this has been a different year, and my guess is it's going to be a different Christmas. And so we just kind of want to look at the Christmas story, kind of unwrap it. And we want to look at the Christmas story and allow it to help us kind of answer some questions that maybe we're asking, right? Like, for instance, how in the world do I keep going on when I don't know what's going on, right? Is that a good question? Amen, right? Yeah. How do I keep going on, right? Christmas story kind of helps us with that. Or, or what happens when what is happening isn't what I plan to happen, right? That's a Christmas story. Or, or where do I find joy when everything that seemed to bring me joy before seems to be missing, right? And so Christmas story kind of helps us with that. Hopefully you'll join us. Invite somebody to watch as well and then call each other, uh, Zoom each other, and talk about uh, the, the conversations we have each week. This is our last week. Daniel is all about how we live as engaged exiles, right? How do we live in a culture that doesn't embrace our values, worship our God, that's not passionate about the things that we're passionate about? Daniel lived as an engaged exile. He was a real exile in a real Babylon. Didn't isolate, didn't assimilate, right? And so what we said is this, Babylon's a picture of any culture dismisses, ignores, minimizes God. And what the Bible says is this, is if you're a follower of Christ, you're in exile. And so we've been saying, well, if we look at Daniel, the engaged exile who really lived in a real Babylon, how do we as exiles live in a culture that many times dismisses, minimizes, ignores God? And so Daniel's been a fun study for us. And we've already looked at Daniel 1 through 6. And it's interesting, Daniel's broken up in this way. Daniel 1 through 6 is the story of Daniel and his, and his friends that he had, that he came from Jerusalem with. But Daniel 7 through 12 kind of flips a switch because that goes from the story into some prophecy. And what's interesting about Daniel 7 through 12 is simply this, is it kind of changes the kind of literature that Daniel uses. It's this apocalyptic literature. Uh, he, he literally is going to uh, outline for us three particular dreams that he had over a 22-year period. It's not chronological, right? So he's going to go back and say, hey, I had this dream during this time, right? And so we want to kind of take a look at this because the purpose of this series was to look at his story. But Pastor Aiden and I thought this, we thought, man, we got to at least, we got to dip our toe in this, this part of Daniel because it is so important. Here's what I know. Now, I want to look at some of that today. And for some of you, you you're checked out. You're, you're going to turn it off. Don't turn it off, right? Because you're like, ah, oh, I don't understand that stuff. I don't like that stuff. That stuff's too difficult. Don't turn it off. There's others of you, uh, you're already crafting your email to me because you're like, you're going to spend one week on this and you don't have any charts and you're not going to, right? Because you're so into this. Uh, here's what I say. When it comes to prophecy, people got all over the board. Let me give you some rules of thumb when it comes to prophecy. I want to give you some things to avoid when it comes to reading prophecy. 
first I'd say this. You ought to write this down somewhere. Avoid avoiding prophecy. Like if you're one of those people like, I don't like prophecy. Avoid, avoid, it's in the Bible. God has it in there for a reason, right? It's powerful. There's some beautiful, robust things God has for us. Uh, the second thing I would say is this. Uh, if you're somebody who's really into prophecy, avoid speculating about things that aren't clear. Uh, I, I hear people all the time say, hey, you know, this is what this means, this is what this means. You know, I think if it was so clear, maybe Jesus would have told us, you know? Like there's some things like just speculation. Be careful because if you do that, you're going to miss the things that are clear, the practical things that are clear. I'd say avoid obsessing uh, over information and just satisfying your curiosity, right? Uh, prophecy is to lead us to worship God. If somehow it doesn't lead us to worship God in a more passionate way, we're missing the point, right? And I would say avoid arrogance, right? Prophecy should lead us to godliness. Uh, prophecy isn't to scare us. It's to encourage us. And by the way, prophecy isn't to scare people who aren't followers of Christ. It's to encourage people who are. First Thessalonians 4 says that, right? It's interesting. So I'd avoid those things, but we're going to look at Daniel 7. Get your Bibles open. Flip it open to Daniel 7. Stay with me on this because I want to take you somewhere important that we got to go. Daniel 7, which stands as a sign over the door of the future for the people of God. Here's what it says. Let's just read it, make some sense of it. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is around 553 BC, Daniel's in mid-60s, something like that. So it's not chronological, right? This is before the handwriting on the wall, the lion's den, all that kind of stuff. Daniel, it says, had a dream. That's interesting. He had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, so all of a sudden the guy who interpreted dreams is having a dream, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. That's interesting. The great sea a lot of times is used to just kind of be a picture of the animosity of our world, the chaos of humanity, right? And so he says this, out of all of that churning up the great sea, right, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, now, I'll tell you this, because you can read, and I can give you passages and all that kind of stuff. Beasts often represent empires, nations, uh, governments, trying to make sense out of the chaos uh, of humanity. Here's what I want you to know, and then we'll come back to this. Daniel 7 parallels Daniel 2. I just want you to remember that. You remember Pastor Aiden let us do that, right? And, and Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it was a big statue, and there, were four, there, there was these four different elements that were used in that statue representing something. Daniel 7 is going to parallel Daniel 2. And you remember that statue represented the kingdoms and the empires, right? And then a rock came and smashed it. Remember that? Okay, so as we read Daniel 7, there's some parallel here. It says, verse 4, The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. I washed until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. Now this is going to be fun, right? It almost feels like Daniel watched a bad sci-fi movie the night before, right? Had a bad pizza along with it, right? But, but it's going to get good, right? Because he says this, and there before me was a second beast. It looked like a bear, right? He's not saying it was a bear, but it looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth. It had a barbecue, right? Between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, look, and therefore, there's another beast. It looked like a leopard. This was kind of cool. And on its back, it had four wings. That's cool. You can't, this is like some of y'all's video games, right? 
<laughs> some, some of y'all, you see this and you're like, this is science fiction, right? Four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. <laughs> and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying, frightening, very powerful. Large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. And listen, it had 10 horns. Now, I can tell you this. Write this down. Psalm 75. When the Bible talks about horns, it, it, it refers to power and strength. This is a powerful beast. That's what it's trying to say. Just write down Psalm 75. Check me on it. When, when it talks about horn, the horn of this beast, the horns of this beast, it's talking about power, right? Well, I was thinking about the horns. There before me was another horn. This is a little one. It came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted. It uprooted something that was powerful, right? It's interesting. This horn had eyes. Okay, it's getting crazy, right? Like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke both. What a dream. I mean, I've had some weird dreams. I don't know if you write down, remember. I can't remember my dreams, but I've had some weird dreams, right? This is a weird dream, man. This would wake you up in a cold sweat. If you're a kid, you have a dream like this, you're running into mom and dad's room, right? I mean, this is an incredible dream. Daniel had to feel like he was in the middle of a modern-day video game, right? He had to feel like, I'm in the middle of this video game, beasts running around, heads, horns, all Lord of the Rings kind of stuff going on, right? To make sense of Daniel 7, David Jeremiah says this. You need to read it like a split-screen TV. Uh, the Bible Project... Uh, guys put together a video and have a poster and their picture kind of looks like this. Kind of put it up here and it's a split screen. And the first part that we just read is that part of the screen. Now stay with me on this. So, so interesting. You can look them up and Bible Project, just Google that. But what's going on here? What well, seems obvious that what's going on here and all commentators would agree, the interpretation given is these beasts represent empires, kingdoms, or nation governments here on earth. And many, many would point to the fact that they represented real empires that were really on the earth at that time and, and then subsequent to Daniel. Here's what I want you to know. Like, like when the lion, let's just, we won't spend much time here, but just think about this. The lion, it would have been easy, obvious for Daniel to think the lion with the wings and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and somehow it was trounced and it was given back and restored. Easy to think it's Babylon. It was actually the symbol of Babylon, you could go to the Ishtar Gate and you see that, that it was a symbol that was painted on their walls, right? And it's easy to think of Nebuchadnezzar, right? You remember that? Like he was deposed from his throne and literally roamed with the animals. And then he was restored, given his mind back, right? It's easy to think that. When it comes to the, the bear, you know, one side, uh, one side. The, remember the, 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 the empire that came when Belshazzar was having his drunken party, right? The empire of the Medes and the Persians, it's easy to think about them because they came and they overtook. And then eventually, though, one side up, it's easy to think. Like the Persians overtook the Medes, right? They overpowered, and then all of a sudden it was the Persian Empire. And, and, and they didn't just take over Babylon, but they took over Egypt and Libya. And so, I don't know. Could that be the three? I don't I have no idea. The three ribs in its mouth? Who knows? But it could, it's easy to think that, right? Easy to think this leopard, four heads, you know, right after the Medes and the Persians, you have a guy named Alexander the Great. Greek empire, right? And he quickly, with speed, just took over the known world, captured it, literally by the age of 33, and then he died. But he didn't have any heirs. And so literally, he turned over his kingdom to his four generals, four heads. I don't know, it's easy to think that, right? And then this, this last beast, you know, uh, Dr. Tim Mackey calls it the super beast, you know? Uh, it's easy 
for your brain to go to the Roman Empire, which followed Alexander the Great. The, the, this incredible empire that devoured strength, 10 horns, maybe referring to the emperors, right? It's easy to think that. Each of these empires or kingdoms have things in common. If we just think about it, uh, they each had things in an attempt to raise up out of the chaos of the sea of humanity. Okay, remember our picture. These beasts, these empires want to somehow bring order to the chaos. And in so doing, they sometimes devour to control. And all of them had some things in common. All of them had a, a strong military, the strongest military around, right? All of them had a strong economic engine. It drove the rest of the economy, right? All of them had a strong political ideology, so to speak. They looked at even their leaders almost like gods or their form of government almost like a god, right? And they all had this story, this ideology that they promised, right? Like, like we're going to promise you a better way of life. All of them had that. It's no doubt, listen close, this is where we lean in. It's no doubt that these empires in particular would have come to his mind. I believe that. But it also is true that just like, just like we've been saying, just like Daniel's Babylon was real and metaphorical, I truly believe these empires were real. But they also are metaphorical and they point to any and all empires, nations, kingdoms, or governments that rise up out of the sea of humanity and try to reign in the chaos of humanity at times with beastly impulses that try to control and reign in ways that sometimes devour others. I think it's the point, I think that's what's going on here, which leads then to the second part of our screen. If we look back at our picture here, the second part of our screen over here, right? is what, what the next part of Daniel talks about. Look what it says, verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were set in place. Okay, this is interesting. In the Ancient of Days. Love that. Only, only place you're going to find this in the Bible, right? Literally the one who had no beginning. The one who's been forever. This is God. <laughs> Scott took his seat. We don't need to think very long like, oh, I wonder who that's talking about, right? His clothing was as white as snow. A lot of times that just is a representation of purity. The hair of his head was white like wool. I mean, think Gandalf, right? I mean, it's like, think wisdom, think whatever imagery, right? I mean, it's interesting. And then it says this, it's interesting to I me. Mean, his throne, so he's on a throne, was flaming with fire. Just let your mind go crazy a minute, right? And its wheels were all ablaze, like the original hot rod, right? I mean, this is a mobile throne, right? What is this a picture of? Well, a lot of times this, this idea of fire is a picture of judgment, right? It's a picture of judgment. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him, thousands upon thousands. Like, you, you can't even count. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Like, there's people everywhere in this dream. Court was seated. Books were opened. This is a judgment moment. Now, now back to our split screen. Back to our picture. This is literally God on the throne, right? And the books are open. The Ancient of the Days is simply this. God's the judge. This part of the dream is God on the throne, and he is the judge of all mankind, empires, nations, and kingdoms. Right? And he has his books. God has books. And this refers to judgment. But then the story gets kind of interesting. I want to show you this. Verse 11. So I continue to watch, Daniel said. Because of the boastful words, the horn. Remember the little horn? Boastful. Speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its, its body was destroyed 
and it was thrown into the blazing fire. That's interesting. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority. They were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, this is key, was one like a son of man. Literally, a son of Adam is what it says. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, you need to know something. In Hebrew literature, uh, many times that would have been representative of the appearing of God. You just need to, like on Mount Sinai, Moses gets the Ten Commandments, cloud covers the mountain. Leading the children through Israel, uh, cloud leads the way, right? Uh, through, through, through the wilderness. Uh, over the tabernacle in the wilderness, the cloud covers. Like this, this, their mind, yours wouldn't go there. You're like, oh, the clouds, right? Their mind would have gone there. So here's a son of man coming as God comes. It's interesting. Who's your mind think of, right? You have an answer? Yeah. If you're in church, which we're in virtual church, nine times out of ten, say Jesus, right? It's a good answer, right? That's a picture. It's powerful. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, won't pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of man. Uh, for, let me just tell you this, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? I heard somebody say that recently, right? We think Jesus Christ, right? In fact, the name that Jesus more times than not calls himself in the Gospels is Son of Man. Uh, I think somebody wrote in one of my commentaries I was reading about 81 times through the Gospels. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Here's the picture, okay? Then I want to read the rest of this. This is the throne room of God where God is pronouncing judgment on the earthly empires and he's giving authority to the son of man who is Jesus to rule and reign. That's the picture, okay? Now, Daniel's in the middle of this and look what it says, right? The next part of your Bible, maybe it has a heading, the interpretation of the dream, right? Some of you are like, yes, right? Because usually this is where... Get to the details, right? Where does Russia play a part? Who's the Antichrist? And all the details, right? It's interesting what he says and what he doesn't say. He says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. I bet you were. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I bet they did. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me. And he gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts, four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, he says, in case you don't believe me, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast. I would too, right? The super beast. Man, that thing had club. What is that about? It was different from all the other. It was most terrifying. Iron teeth, bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also want to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. So this little horn that he saw, it's going to wage war against God's people for a period of time. It's going to look bad for a period of time is what he's saying. Until, verse 22, the ancient of days came, pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. 
and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. It's interesting, right? You know, there's going to be a time when it's going to be tough. This little horn, man, it's going to be, he's going to be a bad dude. He's going to be a bad dude. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down, crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones. He'll subdue three kings. He'll speak against the Most High and oppress his people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Isn't it interesting he gets this interpretation? <laughs> he doesn't tell him where Russia plays a part, right? <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, let me tell you the name of the Antichrist. By the way, there's been many, many theories over the years, right? Everywhere from Jimmy Carter to the Pope to Hitler to whatever, right? He doesn't do any of that. Basically, what he does is he begins to explain because I think there's some things he wants him to know and he doesn't want him to get lost in speculation. Now, who, who in the world is this little horn, this, this little horn that pokes up out of that super beast and it is devastating? Who is that? Well, let me just give you some, some ideas and then we need to move on. Some would say this, this refers to something that's already taken place in the past. This little horn, this, that what, the, the devastation is something that's already happened. So you can write this name down, check me on it, do some history on it. But, but some interpreters and commentators would say this refers to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. You need to know this, right? If you read about the, the period between the Old Testament and New Testament, he pops up after Alexander the Great, about 175 BC-ish, okay? And he, it, he literally calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, and Epiphanes means this, God manifest. Look at me. God manifest. Many of the writers would say that at that time, people took his name and instead of calling him Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, madman, because that's what he was. And this was some devastating, awful time for the Jewish people. He literally would go into their temple and, and, and wipe pig fat on the temple walls, sacrificing pigs in the temple. He, he, he made them do some of the most humiliating, torturous things that you can imagine. It gave rise to something called the Maccabean Revolt, where we get Hanukkah and all that, right? He, he was a, an awful character. And some people say that little horn was him. Others would say it's coming. And they would say that that little horn refers to the Antichrist. Write this down, Revelation 12 and 13. And what you'll see is, man, there's a lot of similarity between that and chapter 7 of Daniel. And there is, right? And so the Antichrist is simply a ruthless world leader who will come for a short period of time, right? And he'll create havoc and he'll persecute the people of God. And then at the end of that time, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Sounds a little bit like what Daniel was seeing here, right? Here's how the chapter ends. It says, but the court's going to sit. His power will be taken away, completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms of their heaven will be handed over to the holy people, the Most High. His kingdom, everlasting kingdom. All the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Woo, this is a doozy. <laughs> this, I mean, like, wow, what's going on here, right? That's what you think to yourself. And then how in the world... Does this apply to me? Let's make, 
a couple observations, and then I want to end with two implications. I want to avoid speculation, but there are some observations that I think we can make that seem to be clear in this passage. First is this, the prophetic dream makes it clear that earthly empires, these earthly empires rise up out of the sea of chaos, the chaos of humanity, and they come and then they go. Think about it this way. These empires that Daniel sees, here's what happens, right? They have an expiration date. All the kingdoms, they have an expiration date. The Babylonian empire is gone. It came to an end. The, the Medo-Persian empire rose up. Great came to an end. Uh, the, 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 the Greek dynasty rose up. Great. Some good things even happened as a result of that, by the way. Not like all bad. Came to an end, right? Roman Empire rose up. Great, powerful. Roman roads, there were some good things. There were some awful things. Devoured a lot of people in the way. Came to an end. I think the point of the passage is this. Earthly empires... Come and go. They have an expiration date, right? They come to an end. That's why this parallels Daniel chapter 2. Because when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, they represented the kingdoms of the world. And do you remember what happened? A rock literally comes and crushes the kingdoms. You got to go back and listen to the, to the sermon Pastor Aiden gave. God is reaffirming to Daniel what he used Daniel to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. That's interesting to me. And with these empires, there's rulers. This is something interesting. Like Antiochus Epiphanes, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar, right? Like Darius. And the Bible says that, that many of these rulers of these empires are a form, now listen close, of Antichrist. The Bible says there will be, don't make any mistake about this, there will be a final Antichrist. Revelation, for sure. But make no mistake, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well throughout history. Let me show you a couple passages. I just want to show you this. 1 John chapter 2. Children, this is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. You, you, you deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the King. That's kind of Antichrist. <laughs> you want to put yourself in the place of King. That's the spirit of Antichrist, who is the King. See how that works? Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Look at 1 John 4. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the, what? Antichrist. Which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Truth is this. Here it is. Empires are led by people who many times have an antichrist spirit 
1 John. Whether those empires rule a nation of hundreds, maybe thousands, listen, listen, or whether it's an empire of my own making where I've set myself up as the ruler of my own domain. He said, that's the spirit of Antichrist. When I realize that earthly empires come and I recognize that they go, there's something else the passage shows us. Observation number two, I write this down, that God ultimately will judge the empires of the earth. All of history is moving to a moment where the books of God will be open. He is the ruler. He is the judge. He's all wise. The picture in Daniel 7, he's all wise, all knowing, all just, and he will in pure righteousness judge the empires of the earth that demonstrate the spirit of Antichrist. How does he do that? How does he do that? Well, that ultimately leads us to the figure in Daniel 7 called the a son of man, which we've already said is Jesus. When Jesus refers to himself, he refers to himself as the son of man, which is him directly connecting himself to this prophecy, by the way, Daniel 7. And Jesus, when he was here, was talking about a future moment in Matthew 25. Look what it says. This future, some of you even know this passage, and maybe you haven't read it quite this way. When the who, say it out loud, son of man, comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Sounds like Daniel 7. He'll sit on his glorious throne, Daniel 7. And all the what? Nations. This is a powerful picture. Sometimes we read Matthew 25 like individuals. All the nations will be gathered before him. Who? The son of man. And he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and goats on his left. And it's powerful, right? We've preached on that before. You can read the rest of that. But listen, listen, lean in. You gotta, get, you gotta go with me here. You, you, you don't even have to like all the idiosyncrasies of prophecy and all that. Before we ever get to Matthew 25, there's something very important that you gotta see that makes, that it's provocative and it makes... Daniel 7, pop. And it's found in Matthew 26. They arrest Jesus. He's standing before the religious leaders. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, aren't you going to answer? They're trying to call this false testimony with Jesus. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus, silent. Son of man, silent, right? And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus looks and he says something powerful. He said, you've said so. That's what you say. But I say, this is what I say to all of you. From now on, you will see the, do you see it? What does it say? Son of what? Man. Immediately, they, they knew their Hebrew Bibles. They all would have Daniel 7. They all would have gone Daniel 7. Sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming what? Daniel 7. On the clouds of heaven. They so put that together that it says the high priest tore his clothes and he said, this is blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now we've heard blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death. They spit in his face, struck him with their fist. Others slapped him. 
Now prophesy, Messiah, who hit you? What's Jesus saying? He said, I'm the Daniel 7, son of man. What did they do to Jesus immediately after this? They killed him. To be honest with you, Daniel later was even told this would happen in Daniel 9. He was told the anointed one eventually will be killed. However you're intrigued by Daniel 7, and however you interpret it, whatever people you're reading, let Jesus interpret it. You know, you read your favorite authors, that's fine. But let Jesus interpret it. And here is Jesus' interpretation of Daniel 7. The Son of Man, I want you to write it down this way. The Son of Man who was judged for me is the King who will reign forever. Jesus in Matthew 26 interprets Daniel 7 for us. And in Matthew 26, listen, he's not looking at the world. He's looking at these religious leaders. And he's saying, the moment you kill me is the moment of my greatest vindication. The moment you think you've defeated me is the moment of victory for me. Listen, listen, this is so important. Jesus is not a king who rules like a beast, devouring and controlling in the middle of human chaos. But he is a king who came into the middle of the chaos of humanity and stared the beast in the eye. Who's the beast? Well, ultimately behind all the chaos is a beast whose name is Satan. He's the serpent from Genesis. He's the lion in 1 Peter. He's behind the beastly figures we see in Revelation. And Jesus is a king who stared the beast in the eye and was devoured in my place and in your place so that all the things that create chaos in me, all the things that kind of stir up the beastly impulses in me, he took my place and paid for my freedom, for my peace, and for my joy. He's a king unlike other kings. That's Daniel 7. What's the implications? Here they are, two, two and we're done. First is this, I want you to write it down. I must decide what to do with this king who died in my place. I think it's interesting that in Matthew 26, Jesus looks at the scholars of the Bible. He would have come to church and said this. Not like preached on the street corner to the world. And he says, you've become part of the beast and its agenda. He's looking at religious leaders and he's saying, you are dis demonstrating the spirit of anti-Christ. When I reject God's authority over me and set about to form my own empire and be the king of my own life, I become part of the beast and I become like a beast. The moment you say yes to Jesus as the Son of Man who died in my place, that moment he becomes the King of your life, the Savior of your soul. He rules. He reigns. I can trust a ruler who literally was devoured for me to rescue me. There's a second implication, and that's this. I want you to write it this way. I'm either being shaped by the empire I'm living in or I'm being shaped by the kingdom I'm part of. I'm either being shaped by one or the other. 
How do I know that I'm allowing King Jesus and his kingdom to influence and shape me? There's probably several ways, but I think there's two questions that are worth us ending with today that might help me know. First question is this. I need to ask myself, do I live with hope-filled worship or fear-filled worry? The prophecy points us to a God who is in control. The Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne. He's not running around heaven saying, ah, I wonder what's going on. Ah, I can't believe this is happening down there. Like, he's sitting. The Ancient of Days is sitting. He's in control. He's sovereign. And the prophecy points to a king who is one and is ruling right now in the heart of everybody who said yes to him. His exiles on this earth. He will ultimately judge the empires of the earth and all of its peoples and reign forever. We are literally, the Bible says, co-heirs with Jesus. Romans 8, write it down somewhere on a piece of paper. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Love that. Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you what? Live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now I can say, Daddy, Father, Listen to this. The Spirit testifies with my spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We know how the story ends. Let me just tell you this. Then I'll go to the second question. In the middle of 2020 and everything that's going on, if I'm running around totally overwhelmed with worry, totally driven by fear, it might be pointing me to the fact that I'm too rooted in this earthly empire that I find myself in. Somehow Daniel 7 leads to, right, hope-filled worship. That's the whole reason for Daniel 7 through 12. God wanted Daniel to know, hey, this is troubling right now at the end of Daniel 7, but he takes him to the end. He's like, I want you to know how this thing's going. Right? It's the second question that I think might help me know whether or not I'm being shaped by earthly empire or kingdom I'm a part of. And it is simply this. I need to ask myself, am I partnering with God and his purposes or frustrated that he's not partnering with me and mine? We're aliens and exiles, and not only that, but God says you're also my ambassadors relaying the good news of the message of the Son of Man who was judged in my place, who is the king who will reign forever. Here's the truth. Sometimes we get frustrated because we want to be the king. And what we really want is for God to help me with my kingdom. We get frustrated. And so when <clears throat> things don't go our way, when things seem to be in jeopardy, uh, we all of a sudden get agitated and frustrated because we had an agenda, an ambition that we were thinking God's gonna partner with me in what I'm doing. And really what he says is, I'm the king. I want you to partner with me in what I'm doing. As somebody, somebody wanna talk politics, I hear there's some politics going on, right? <laughs> and people are like so frustrated because the election didn't go their way, whoever, and some people, I get it. I'm not gonna talk to you about that. But what I'm saying is this, that regardless of that, that is happening here, and it's okay for you to feel whatever you feel, but if you're a follower of Christ, can I just tell you this? Our purpose hasn't changed. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church with followers of me, 
and we're going to storm the gates of hell. Like there's people who need to know about this, this ruler, this king, this son of man who came and was judged for them. And he says, I want you to be a co-laborer with me in that. Here's the deal. Coronavirus, all the things that happen, that is the purpose of God for those who are followers of Christ. You see, if I'm somebody who's frustrated because everything's not going the way I planned and want it, it might point that I'm kind of rooted here versus being influenced by the king, the kingdom I'm part of. Daniel makes me think of a story of a missionary couple that was coming back from Africa and they just happened to be on a boat with President Teddy Roosevelt. And as that boat pulled into the New York Harbor, it was interesting because the old missionary couple watched as parade was thrown, people clapping. Hundreds of people wanted to just get a sight of Teddy Roosevelt just to welcome him home. Just to, just to say, man, I want to talk to you. I want to clap for you. I want to see the president. This couple watched as this was going on, and the old man, beaten and, and even a bit discouraged with no retirement, he felt a little bit despondent. He was like, man, it doesn't seem fair. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair that we just spent our whole life as missionaries. We come back to the States and... No one's here to meet us. The president gets a welcome like that. He told his wife that he was discouraged and he felt like this just wasn't fair. His wife said, I don't think you should feel that way. He said, well, I do. That night he decided to just spend time in prayer and the next day he came out. And he told his wife, he said, you know, I feel like God really met with me last night. And she said, Tell me what happened. She said, when I came, I was so discouraged. The president got such a warm welcome and no one was there to meet us. And I felt like last night, what God made abundantly clear to me was this. He said to me, that's because you're not home yet. Engaged exiles, not isolating, not assimilating, but engaging in our culture because we have a king, a savior, who is judged for us and who reigns in us. So God, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you for the hope of it. And God, I pray that we here at the Norton Campus, Grace Church, would be engaged exiles, pointing a world to Jesus, shining the lights bright on him. Thanks for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.